understand the times in which uh, we live really is helpful for us to know how we ought to live during these times. And there's I, the book I asked you guys to consider reading, if you hadn't read it, is in, in, unless it's in here, is entitled The Mideast Beast by Joel Richardson. What it is, it really develops the idea of the end time paradigm being an Islamic end time paradigm. And I tell you, once you have this, once you have your paradigm right, it's amazing uh, how many verses start to make sense to you. And so I just really urge you to, to read that. It's excellent. And I really uh, uh, am indebted to Joel Richardson uh, for much. In fact, I've, he and I have talked about him coming sometime to, to do a conference. We probably worked it out sometime in the future. I'm also indebted to him to some of the things I want to share with you tonight. I want to talk to you tonight about Mystery Babylon. You know, there's a lot of things prophetically that we haven't been able to piece together in the past. And one of the reasons we haven't been able to piece them together is because the, the, the world wasn't in the right, things weren't staged right for us to make sense out of the verses in light of what's going on. And now we really, so many things have taken place that I think for the first time, it's like the light is turned on and we're able to make sense out of a lot of prophetic, uh, you know, mysteries. And I think the... The ultimate, I think, prophetic mystery is Mystery of Babylon. And uh, I think tonight, I think a light's going to be turned on and for all of us. So I really encourage you to just really track with me as we go. I want to do all this in, in one session. I want you to get it all in one session because it's really going to uh, come together uh, as you listen. Now, the revelation that finds itself primarily in the book of Revelation, chapter 17 and 18, is about Mystery Babylon, the great harlot, the great prostitute. But actually, this revelation about Mystery Babylon really begins in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, and I spoke on that uh, some few weeks ago, there's a prophecy that has to do with the four beasts. Now, these beasts are symbols that really portray four world empires. Those of you who, are, who have been here a while at Grace uh, understand that. These are four world empires. These beasts are world empires. And this idea of these, of these beasts being empires is picked up again in Revelation chapter 13. And then the symbolism of a beast as an empire is also then later picked up again in Revelation 17 and 18. Now understand the Bible is progressive revelation. In other words, it gives us some information and then it adds to that information and expands on it. The mystery of Babylon is called also the great harlot, who by the time we get to Revelation 17, she is sitting on and riding this beast. Now, this beast represents, the beast he's riding when we get to Revelation chapter 17, represents the final world empire that is the enemy of the people of God on the earth. So it's, it's, it's the satanic empire that is really going, is going to be the vehicle that the Antichrist will use, he and his armies. And when we get to Revelation 17, this woman is portrayed as riding on the beast. 
So they go together. They're a team. Now, as we delve into determining just who Mystery Babylon is, it's important that our understanding of who Mystery Babylon is lines up with all the biblical descriptions. You know, there's a lot of theories about who Mystery Babylon is. And the thing about it is these theories will line up with a few of the descriptions. But none of these theories line up with all the descriptions, really except the one I'm going to give you tonight. So tonight what I want to do is I want us to walk through 11 biblical descriptions of, of Mystery Babylon. And we're going to walk through them, what the Bible says, that how the Bible describes her, and by the time we're done, we're going to know who she is. So you guys ready? Okay, the first biblical description of Mystery Babylon, number one, is she lives in a desert. She lives in a desert, Revelation 17, 1 through 3. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke to me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a desert. Now, your translation may say wilderness. He's talking about the word Aramos. It's a solitary, lonely, uninhabited place. And it says a desert. So he, so it says that verse 13, verse 3, I'm sorry, of Revelation 17, he carried me away in the spirit into a desert and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names. There she is sitting on the beast. Remember, the beast is the beast empire. Having seven heads and ten horns. Okay, so the first thing we know about Mystery Babylon is she lives in a literal desert. That's the first description we have of her. She lives in a desert. All right, number two. Number two, she is royalty. She is royalty. Revelation 17, 4. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Revelation 18, 7. She says in her heart, I sit as queen. She sees herself as royalty and not a widow and will never see mourning. By the way, keep that phrase in mind for later. She's both a queen and a prostitute, and that leads us to number three. Third description. She is both a powerful religious and economic influence in the earth. By the way, it's important for us to understand biblically fornication, spiritual fornication is idolatry. It's when someone worships someone or something else rather than the one true God, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. Revelation 17.2, it says this, With whom the kings of the earth, talking about Babylon, the harlot, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Revelation 18.3, For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. So through her influence, she's caused the rulers of the earth to commit fornication with her. Now, one thing's in view here is idolatrous worship, 
idolatrous worship is in view. So the people of the earth are drunk with her religious, corrupt, unbiblical religious practices, influence. The merchants of the earth also have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. So she is a consumer. So through her purchasing, she makes these merchants of the earth rich. Keep that in mind. Number four, she is guilty of the death of the saints. Revelation 17, 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. So it's the blood of the holy ones and with the blood of the witness of Jesus. I believe he's talking about Jews and Christians here. So this woman, this harlot, Mystery Babylon, is responsible for the death of Jews and Christians. Again, I'm, I'm taking the Holy Ones as, as a reference to Israel here in this, in this particular passage because then he also talks about the witnesses of Jesus set as a separate category. Revelation 18, 24, And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. So she's guilty of the death of Jews and Christians. Number five, she lives in extravagant luxury. Extravagant luxury. Revelation 17, 4, And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Revelation 18.7, to the, to the degree that she glorified herself and she lived sensuously. Revelation 18.9, and the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality, they lived sensuously with her. So those in, who engage with her, those who are actually in a relationship with Babylon, once we, we'll find out who that is, actually they are living luxuriously with her. All right, number six. The kings and people of the earth commit fornication with her. Now remember, the idea here is spiritual. The idea here is the religious influence of this harlot that is causing them to worship a false god. That's what's in view here. Revelation 17.2, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. They're intoxicated with her religious influence. This is idolatry. This is false worship. This is a false religion. We're talking about Revelation 18.9. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her. Number seven, the beast nations will hate her. Remember, they start off as partners. But there comes a time where the beast nations, this empire, this antichrist empire, is going to turn against her. So what are the beast nations? Well, the beast nations are the nations, again, that make up the final empire of the Antichrist. It's the final coalition of the nations. Remember, it's the ten horns. They will turn on her and devour her flesh. Revelation 17, 16. And the ten horns, which you saw, remember, that's that ten-nation confederation that the Antichrist rules over. The ten horns which you saw, and the beast, this is, that, this is that empire, this is the beast empire. These will hate the harlot, and will make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh, and will burn her up with fire. So the actual Antichrist confederation of nations that was in partnership with her at one point, remember she's riding the beast, at one point in a partnership with her is going to end up because, and actually turning against her to destroy her. 
So they start off together as sort of a partnership, but in the end, the beast nations will turn on her and destroy her. Number eight, she represents the greatest false religion that has ever existed. Revelation 17.5 says, And upon her forehead a name was written, a, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. The mother of harlots. Now, we've got to make sure we understand the Eastern way of thinking here, what it means by this phrase, mother of harlots. It doesn't mean that she gives birth to all the other little harlots or false religions. That's not what it means. It means that she's the worst of all the harlots. How do we know that? Well, remember back when the war first, we had the war with Iraq and Saddam Hussein before that battle. Remember what he said? He said, it's going to be the mother of all battles. Remember that? He's speaking as with the Eastern way of thinking. What he meant was, it's going to be the greatest of all battles. That's what he meant. Well, the wuss woman represents the greatest false religion the world's ever known. Number nine, all nations will feel the wrath of her false religion. Revelation 18.3, for all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion, or wrath is a better translation. They've drunk the wine of the wrath of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. So all nations will feel her wrath. The wrath of her false religion is going to be unleashed on all nations. Number 10. She is a rabid consumer. She is just consumes and consumes. Revelation 18.11. And the merchants of the earth weep. After, after the beast turns on her and destroys her, and, her, and she is, the smoke of her burning is rising up, verse 11, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes in a specific here. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and other things we'll talk about a little bit. She's a rabid consumer. And number 11, she is portrayed as a coastal city. Revelation 18, 17, and 18, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste, because she's destroyed. And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor, and as many as make their living by the sea, stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning saying, what city is like the great city? So it is close enough to the sea for these who do their business by the sea to see the smoke rise as she burns, and they weep over it. So these are 11 descriptions that are given to us about mystery Babylon. But there's something else we need to take into consideration before we get specific with who this must be. We need to look at 1 Peter 5.13. Let's look at this passage together because this is really important for our understanding. 1 Peter 5.13. This is Peter. And he writes this. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Where was Peter when he wrote that? 
Peter was in Rome. Now, before you, you go off with that one, hold on. But he was in Rome when he wrote that. That isn't debatable, really. Literal Babylon at that time in the first century, when he writes this, was in ruins. Peter is referring to, in the first century, to Rome as Babylon. The early church understood that Babylon was a code word for Rome at that time. At that time, this is important. See, the first Babylon, or the, what I call the prototype for the last day's mystery Babylon, was the capital of ancient Babylonia, which is the third head of the beast empire. Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire, which is the sixth head of the beast empire. Hold on. Now, again, remember through history, we have seven historical pagan empires. In fact, I talked about, those of you who were here last Sunday morning, I talked some about that. There's a succession of antichrist empires. There's these empires through history that the devil has used to come against the people of God and the purposes of God. And we know who these empires are. These are the beast empires. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, that's the first six. In the first century, the Roman Empire was the beast kingdom at that time. So it's the beast kingdom that Satan is using to come up against God's people and God's purposes. And the Roman Empire worshipped pagan gods. They were very anti-Semitic and very anti-Christian. And Rome was the capital in the first century of that empire. So Rome was the Babylon of the early church. Again, the Babylon concept, it migrates. It moves around. The Babylon is the capital of the reigning beast empire. That's what, ba- that's what Babylon is. It's the spiritual and financial power base of the reigning beast empire, whichever one it is in history. It's the capital of world idolatry at that time in history. It's literally literally Satan's primary geographic stronghold in the earth at any given time. So again, here's the eight heads of the beast. Remember, the beast shows up with seven heads, but we know that the seventh head goes away, comes back as an eighth. All right, here's the eighth, eight heads, or the eight beast empires. Number one, Egyptian. Number two, Assyria. Number three, Babylon. Number four, Persia. Number five, Greece. Number six, Rome. Number seven, the Islamic Empire. The Ottoman Islamic Empire follows the Roman Empire. For 500 years, they rule the Middle East and Jerusalem. And it is said that the seventh will go away, and it did, 1923. It says it will come back. That's the eighth. The eighth beast empire is revived Islamic empire. So today we are waiting for the revived Islamic empire to arise, and that will be the beast kingdom the Antichrist will lead on the last days. So here's my question for you. What is the capital of the Islamic world? Hold that thought. We'll come back to that. Or how about this question? What is the center 
of world idolatry today. What, where is more idolatry going on in one place today than any other place on earth? Where is it? Hold on to that thought. <laughs> what I want to do now before we actually get into exactly who it is, I want to consider some of the theories that have been proposed and why they don't work. Remember, whatever the theory is, it has to answer all 11 of those we just went through. What a lot of people do, they come up with theory because a few of them fit. But if all 11 don't fit, it can't be Mystery Babylon. Theory number one that's been proposed is Mystery Babylon is literal Babylon. My first thought when I hear that is, then why is it called Mystery Babylon? <laughs> why not just call it Babylon? Back when Saddam Hussein was, had this vision when, where he was in power that he was going to rebuild Babylon. I don't know how many guys remember it? Uh, there was a guy who wrote a book trying to show that this is going to be the Babylon, is the real Babylon. And of course, it never went anywhere. And today, it's, it's, it's still not going anywhere. It's, I, in fact, I had a slide, I forgot to stick it in here, of really, here's the condition of Babylon. It's, uh, it just doesn't fit the 11-part description. It's not an economic powerhouse. And uh, it's, it's just, there's, there's, in fact, there's nothing trending in the direction it could possibly be that economic powerhouse. It's, it doesn't rule over the kings of the earth. It doesn't have special influence over the kings of the earth. It's not drunk with the blood of the saints. I mean, I could go down the list. It just doesn't work. Literal Babylon doesn't work. All right, so let's go through theory number two. Theory number two is Rome or the Catholic Church. Now, Rome was Babylon during the early church, but it's no longer the capital of that, that beast empire. Rome fell. Rome fell. So the Islamic Empire took over, ruled the Middle East, Northern Africa. And, it, and Rome doesn't fit. Rome's not, Rome is not powerful today. The Catholic Church is not powerful today. The Catholic Church is not an economic powerhouse. It does not wield power over the kings of the earth. You might have go to the Middle Ages and said they had some power over some kings then. They do not have power over the kings of the earth today. The Catholic Church is not drunk on the blood of the saints. In the past, they had persecuted Christians and there was, there was anti-Semitism. But since then, there's been a repentance about the Catholic Church. The Vatican is not in a desert. The merchants of the earth would not see her burning and weep over the fact they weren't gonna, that the Vatican wasn't going to buy their stuff anymore. And by the way, the Catholic Church does not deny the incarnation. They believe it. They do not deny the divine sonship of Jesus. They believe it. They don't deny the deity of Christ. They believe it. They don't deny the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. They believe it. They don't deny the Bible is the word of God. But there is a religion that denies all those things. But hold that thought. <laughs> all right, theory number three, USA, New York City. Well, the USA does not represent a false religion. In fact, the United States of America has been the greatest missionary sending agency the world's ever known. USA does not exist in a desert. USA is not drunk on the blood of the saints. It just doesn't fit. Theory number four, Jerusalem. 
Now think about why this can't work right off the bat. Messiah is going to come and reign over the earth from Jerusalem for a thousand years. But yet, Mystery Babylon is destroyed, it says, and will burn forever. So how in the world could it be Jerusalem? It doesn't work. Plus, Jerusalem is not an economic or political powerhouse. The merchants of the earth are not getting rich off selling their stuff to Jerusalem. It just doesn't work. None of these theories work. So who is it? Next slide. It is Saudi Arabia and Mecca. Next slide. That is a map with an Islamic perspective on the world. They believe it is the center of the world. Next slide. 1.6 billion people every day, five times a day, bow down and face the direction of Mecca and pray. And make no mistake about it, they are not worshiping the one true God. They are not worshiping the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible did not place a shrine to himself in Mecca. Mecca today is the world capital of idolatry. The kingdom of Saudi Arabia slash Mecca is mystery Babylon, and I'll prove it to you. I want to go through these 11 descriptions now of the great harlot and see how it lines up. All right, answer. First question, is Saudi Arabia in a desert? Again, Revelation 17, 3, and he carried me away in the spirit into a desert. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. She is in a literal desert. Saudi Arabia is in a desert. A slide of Saudi Arabia. There you go. That is Saudi Arabia. You Google Saudi Arabia and say, give me some photos, you'll get a whole bunch of these. One million square miles of desert. It's a lot of sand. Next question. Is Saudi Arabia royalty? All right. Next slide. I'll give you a little background here. I think it's important for us to see how things developed in the, in the Arabian Peninsula there. In the 1700s, there was a Sunni Muslim named Muhammad Wahhab. He lived 1703 to 1791. What he did is he traveled about the Ottoman Empire comparing what he saw with what he thought Islam was supposed to be, according to the Koran. And he began a whole new movement that denounced all these bad influences he saw on Islam. All this luxurious living that was going on and, and Sufi influence and so forth. And so there was this movement that later was called Wahhabism that he really started. Went on through the 1800s and into the early 1900s. Now, when you get to the early 1900s, you have the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. It's like, so in one mind, keep in mind that Wahhabism is on the move. But also you have the Ottoman Empire collapses in the early 1900s on the Arabian Peninsula. And what happens is it goes back to a, a bunch of divided tribes. 
similar to how it was during Muhammad's day. Well, along comes a man by the name of Muhammad ibn Saad. And after some years of just of fighting, he managed to consolidate his power on the Arabian Peninsula. I mean, he was just, he was just a desert Bedouin. He rose up and he began, and he, had, he was a strong leader, and he sort of wrestled with the, you know, over with these different Bedouin tribes, and he pulled it together and really pulled it into a unity and he actually ended up naming the entire peninsula after himself and called it Saudi Arabia. And this was the beginning of this new entity that's never existed before. In fact, the whole western coast of Arabia was controlled by the Ottomans for over 500 years until 1923 and 1924. And then when the Ottoman Caliphate was abolished, and everything kind of dissolved into tribal state. Then this Saud, man named Saud, he rises up and he really takes charge and develops the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So again, the Ottoman Empire collapses and out of the collapse rises up Saud and eventually the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So you got these two things going. You got Saud taking power and you got Wahhabism on the move. And then add to that, now we get to 1936, add to that, they discover oil. What would soon be known as the largest significant string of oil fields the world has ever known. And of course, that changed the world. Shortly after that, a series of alliances were formed, governmental alliances that changed also the world. And one of the first ones to step up and make sure they had an alliance with Saudi Arabia was the United States of America. In the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, when, it was, when I was being formed, again, there's this alliance with uh, the religious side. They had, the religious side was Wahhabism. And since that time, Wahhabism and the house of Saud actually essentially became just one and the same. So Saudi Arabia is not only the geographical womb of Islam, because Saudi Arabia, of course, is the home of Mecca and Medina. That's where Muhammad's entire career is played out, where he rises to be the prophet of Islam. But also, it's the home of Wahhabism, it's the, which is the ideological womb of Islam. So it is the geographical womb of Islam. There's Mecca, Medina, it is the ideological womb of Islam, Wahhabism. And then it becomes the financial support. Now it's got lots of money because of the oil. It's now the financial support base for the propagation of Wahhabism into the world. By the way, Wahhabism is the most radical, purest form of Sunni Islam. So Saudi Arabia is, now becomes the significant proponent, supporter, financier of Wahhabism or radical Sunni Islam. So how do they do that? How do they support that and finance that today? The answer, in every way possible. If there is a mosque or an Islamic center in a city in the United States or for throughout the world for that matter, it is, it is most likely been paid for by the Saudi government. Saudi Arabia also trains and sends out the missionary hate preachers, the imams, 
They fill the mosque with Saudi-sanctioned hate literature. If you went into a mosque and you picked up some of the literature and you turned it over, you'd see it was sanctioned by the government of Saudi Arabia. And you find out a lot of this literature that is sanctioned by the government of Saudi Arabia actually calls on Muslims to engage in jihad. 2005, Freedom House did a survey of literature that was found in U.S. mosques. So this group, Freedom House, they did a survey, 2005, of the, sur- of the literature they found in mosques in the United States of America. And they found numerous examples that were calling Muslims to jihad. And then they looked, into, and all of these literature, it had the seal of the Saudi government that it was approved by the Saudi government. By the way, this isn't some conspiracy theory, guys. This is a human rights organization, Freedom House. And they were, they were trying to show that the Saudis are funding, printing, and filling the mosque with radical literature. That's all they're trying to show. And by the way, the same is true of the madrasas all over Pakistan, paid for and funded by the Saudis. Now, whether you're dealing with Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, ISIS, Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram, their ideological foundation and financial foundation for all those groups comes from Saudi Arabia. James Woolsey was a former CIA director of the United States. In 2005, he testified before the U.S. House of Representatives on the Committee for Government Reform. And this is a statement he made. I quote it. He said, some 85 to 90 billion dollars has been spent from sources in Saudi Arabia over the last 30 years to spread Wahhabi beliefs around the world. And since that time, probably another 30 billion. So about 120 billion with a B, billion dollars are being sent, has been spent by Saudi Arabia for the propagation of Wahhabism. So this is the womb. Saudi Arabia is the womb where terrorism is coming from. It goes throughout the world. It's the primary fountain where it all comes from. The source is Saudi Arabia. Now, next question. Is she both a powerful religious and economic influence on the earth? Again, I just pointed out it's the very womb of Islam. She's the heart of Islam. The Saudi monarchy are the custodians of the two holiest cities in the Islamic world of Mecca and Medina. They're the custodians of Mecca, the world capital of idolatry. Go ahead and show the next slide. And if you can afford it, you're supposed to go there, make a pilgrimage, and walk around the Kaaba, that's black cube in the middle, and touch it. They said it started off as white, but it absorbs the sins of the people and turned black. That's what they believe. Let me tell you some economic uh, facts about Saudi Arabia. Many of you are familiar with Dubai and Abu Dhabi and and the uh, United Arab Emirates. The gross domestic product of Saudi Arabia is three times as much as the UAE. She exports more more oil than any, any other nation in the earth. She has the greatest percent of oil reserves in the earth. She's home to Mecca, Islam's most sacred city. All right, next question. Does Saudi Arabia live in extravagant luxury? 
Does a Saudi monarchy live in extravagant luxury? Next slide. This is a, a car owned by Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, Saudi prince. This is, uh, this is a little dated, so he's probably got a lot more. But this time he had 30, this was his 38th car worth $4.8 million, diamond-studded Mercedes. These are toys to these guys. I mean, why would you put, why would you have a $4.8 million diamond-studded Mercedes? By the way, what's interesting, go to the next slide. There he is right there. Uh, he actually sued Forbes for underestimating his wealth by $9 billion. The deceased King Fahd owned dozens of palaces. Each one was more grand than the other. In fact, uh, Gerald Posner, who wrote the book Secrets of the Kingdom, the inside story of the Saudi-U.S. connection, said this about King Fahd, and I quote, His official palace was essentially a tiny Vatican city with opulent furnishings and walls that ran several miles around the perimeter, Architects who worked on the palaces estimate they were worth several billion in the 1980s. Now, one of his sons, Prince Aziz, one of his sons, built, built for himself a replica of the White House, estimated to be worth $4.8 billion. That's a house. That's a private residence. One of his private residences. Now, think about this for a moment. Can you think of any... Great entertainer today or politician or anyone that has that kind of money to waste and throw around in the world anywhere beside there. King Fahd also had a 100-room house in Marbella, Spain, a spectacular estate outside of Paris that was initially built for the 18th century French kings, a mansion near London on which he spent nearly $60 million refurbishing, and a sprawling palace in Geneva in which he was fond of boasting that he had 1,500 telephone lines. That's before cell phones. He flew between cities in a private 747 fitted with enormous, enormous pink master bedroom, gold bathroom fixtures, Solid gold bathroom fixtures, mahogany elevators, sauna, crystal chandeliers. He had a lavish, he had this, uh, lavish yacht the size of a luxury liner. And maybe back when he got it, a long time it was $50 million. He kept 20, he had 24 Rolls Royces, all fitted with gold horn ornaments and grills and all, for all of his different homes. That's all by Posner, Gerald Posner. The book is Secrets of the Kingdom, the inside story of the Saudi-U.S. connection. This is uh, the deceased king father. Let's read Revelation 18.7 again. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously. I mean, would this be fitting to apply to the Saudi monarchy? I mean, is there any other royal entity that lives in a desert in the earth that we can compare to the Saudis' luxury and amount of wealth. There's no one close. Okay, next question. Do the kings and the peoples of the earth commit fornication with her? All right, June 
2006, the Council of Islamic Relations, which presents themselves as a charitable organization, but there's nothing but an Islamic propaganda organization. In fact, they've, they've actually said, this organization actually said it's C-A-I-R, CARE. They actually said that they, their goal is to replace the U.S. Constitution with Islamic law. They announced that it was planning a meeting with Alouid bin Talal, that's that prince you saw a picture of, to finance a five-year, $50 million media campaign to divide oh, and to create a better understanding of Islam and Muslims in the United States. Now, I want you to know this prince, bin Talal, he donated $20 million to support Harvard University Islamic Studies Program. He also donated $20 million to Georgetown. In fact, the end of the slide there or not? I'll hold that one. We'll get to that one. You know, he went, Talal went, Prince Talal went to Harvard and lectured. He lectured. They let him lecture, I guess, $20 million. You get to do that. He went to Harvard and lectured for the need of the United States and its citizens to be more tolerant of Islam. I want to put this in context. You have a Saudi prince that comes from a country where it's illegal to openly practice Christianity or any other religion except Sunni Islam. You're not allowed to build a single church. You're not allowed to build a synagogue. You can't build anything but a mosque in that country. And he has the gall to come to the United States of America and then, and then lecture us on that we are, as a country should be more tolerant of Islam. That is the very definition of hypocrisy. Harvard committed fornication, financial fornication with this man. They received the $20 million and they let him spread his Islamic propaganda. The same thing happened in Georgetown. Georgetown has John Eposito. He's the, he's the Islamic apologist there. He's in the back pocket of the Saudis. And so, so, they have, so they have all kinds of tentacles in academia, not just, we're going to see, how about the media? Does the, the, the Saudi, is there Saudi influence in the media in the United States? I tell you, you're going to be surprised to hear this. Prince Talal, who I just, you've seen his pictures now, probably, he's probably the most famous Saudi prince. He is the largest shareholder in News Corp, which is the parent company of Fox News. what is considered to be the most conservative and trusted news core in the country by many. It's interesting, back in 2011, I don't know how many of you guys remember, but Glenn Beck had a show back then with Fox. Remember you guys remember that? Well, Glenn Beck had Joel Richardson on his show. I remember watching that live thinking, uh-oh. wonder what's going to happen after this program. And Glenn Beck went on, he, he bought into the whole end-time Islamic paradigm, and Glenn Beck was pushing it, and he's very bright and very effective communicator, and he was talking about the Islamic Antichrist understanding in the Bible on his program on Fox News. Some of you guys may remember that. A few weeks later after that, it was announced that he was leaving Fox News. And I've, I've heard from somebody that Glenn Beck actually told some of his friends privately that he, was, he said himself he was kicked off Fox News because of the Islamic majority ownership of Fox. All right, let's go 
little farther. What about Saudi influence at the highest levels? Let's talk about presidents of the United States. And here we have, go back to that photo. Here we have Prince Talal with Jimmy Carter. President Jimmy Carter was corrupted by the Saudis. He was completely in the back pocket of the Saudis. In fact, he refused to disclose the amount of money the Saudis had donated to him. What we do know is this. We know that in the 1970s, BCCI, which is a brazenly anti-Semitic bank controlled by the Saudi royal family, they bailed out the Carter's family peanut farm to the tune of millions of dollars. In fact, Aka Hassan Abedi, Abedi, he's the founder of BCCI, gave Carter gave Carter $500,000 to help him establish his center, and then he gave more than $10 million to Mr. Carter's different projects. In 1993, King Fahd of Saudi Arabia's, he presented, King Fahd presented Carter with a personal gift of $7.6 million. And by the way, the king uh, is only one of several Saudi royals that donated multiple millions to Carter. And as of 2005, uh, Prince Talal, also donated another, he donated $5 million to Carter. So Carter received these multiple millions of dollars from uh, different Saudi uh, sheiks. In fact, one of them who is a brazen anti-Semite, Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan Nayan. In fact, uh, his, he has a Zayed Center for Coordination and Follow-Up, a group funded by Zayed. He hosts speakers he has speakers come, and he actually calls Jews the enemies of all the nations. This guy attributed the assassination of John F. Kennedy to Israel and the Mossad. This guy attributed 911 attacks to the United States of America's own military. And this guy stated the Holocaust was a fable. And this is the kind of guy that gave millions of dollars to Carter. Now, is that the kind of group you'd like to be associated with? But that's, that is the group that President Jimmy Carter took millions of dollars from. They also hosted a speech by Jimmy Carter. He came and spoke. Here's what he said. Carter actually said, this is a quote. He said, this is awkward. This awkward uh, because I, and I have a, this, this time has a special significance, he says, for me because it is named for my personal friend, Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan al-Nayan. That's one of the presidents of the United States. In fact, the Saudi-based bin Laden family also donated large sums of money to Carter. They had a large construction family in, the, in Saudi Arabia. Now think about this for a minute, because the Saudis are the worst human rights violators on the planet. They have sex slaves. It is, it's all sanctioned by the Koran. There was a Saudi couple that was arrested for taking a Filipino girl back with them. The, the, the wife was complicit in this whole thing. They were arrested in the United States. They were taking her back to be a sex slave. When the Saudis heard about it, they sent a delegation over to challenge that, that he could, they could not be arrested because that would be a violation of his religious rights. And despite all these human rights abuses, U.S. presidents have been in the pocket of Saudi Arabia. The average girl that's married, that is married in Yemen is 14 years old. That's average. That means there's some younger, some older. That's average. Many are younger. 
fact, an eight-year-old girl actually got a divorce from a Saudi man in his 30s because she said that all he does is chase me around all day for sex. And that's legal according to Islam. That's child abuse. And what is the result of this influence that Saudi Arabia has had on Carter? Well, Carter was actually, President Carter was actually an outspoken critic of what he calls the Jewish lobby. Here's what he claimed. He claimed that no, no reporter or politician who's ever received Jewish donations can objectively speak to the Middle East situation. Now, when you compare the amount of money that Israel's donated to U.S. politicians compared to the amount of money that Saudi Arabia's donated, there's no comparison. In fact, uh, next slide. Jimmy Carter wrote this book, Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid. It is a rampant anti-Semitic book. It accuses Israel of being a violator of human rights while he turns a blind eye to what the Saudi Arabia is doing. All right, well, let's not just pick on him. Let's go to the Clintons. Next slide. Approximately $32 million came from Saudi and other Gulf Arab nations to the Clintons. Now, just think about that. Is there any chance that that could affect the way that they might make decisions in the Middle East? Could there be a conflict of interest? Here is an article in the Daily Caller. I'm going to quote it. Bill and Hillary Clinton received at least $100 million from autocratic Gulf states and their leaders, potentially undermining Democratic presidential candidate Hillary. Hillary's claim that she can carry out independent Middle East policies. As a, again, I'm still quoting, as a presidential candidate, the amount of foreign cash that the Clintons have amassed from the Persian Gulf is unprecedented. That is by national security analyst Patrick Poole. Okay, what about the Bushes? All right, here's a slide. Next slide. And I tell you, and I, I like Bush. I voted for Bush. In his book, the journalist Craig Unger writes this, quote, In all, $1.46 billion made its way from the Saudis to the house of Bush. Its allied companies and its institutions. It could safely be said that never before in history had a presidential candidate, much less a presidential candidate and his father, a former president, been so closely tied financially and personally to the ruling family of another foreign power. Never before had a president's personal fortunes and public policies been so deeply entwined with another nation. All right? What happened on 911? We all know what happened, but we don't all know the whole story. The entire, after 911, we all, most of us probably know the entire airfield was grounded. No one was allowed in the air, right? How about some leading American politician? Could they fly? No. No one was allowed in the air except for Saudi princes and royals. The only planes in the air in 911 in the next two days were the Saudis. I mean, can you imagine living with that amount or that level of special treatment? I mean, you are the only 
exception. You're the only exception, the most powerful nation in the world because of the influence you have over the presidency. Now you're thinking, well, yeah, I don't know if I'm buying all this, you know. Uh, sounds kind of conspiracy theory stuff. Why is so much of this information unknown? Well, I'm quoting, I'm quoting books written by CIA, past CIA directors and agents. Why is this information so unknown? I'm going to tell you why. Because Saudi money also buys silence. This is perhaps the most taboo subject in Washington, D.C. It's not just presidents. It's senators, House of Representatives. It's generals. It's colonels. They retire and they get on some board where they're paid these huge sums of money and they stay in the Saudi's pocket. By the way, uh, the secret... The secrecy of the harlot's sins are mentioned by Yahweh through the prophet Isaiah. Let's read this passage. Isaiah 47, verse 7 through 10. It's talking about Babylon, and the prophet sees past the existing Babylon, he sees all the way down to the final beast empire capital Babylon, and he says this, Isaiah 47, 7. Yet you said, I shall be queen forever. That sound familiar? Yet you said, I shall be queen forever. These things you did not consider, nor remember the outcome of them. Now this, hear this, you sensual one who dwells securely, who says in your heart, I am, and there's no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I no loss of children. But these two things shall come on you suddenly in one day. Loss of children and widowhood. They shall come on you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great power of your spells. And you felt secure in your wickedness and said, no one sees me. In other words, there's that arrogance and confidence that's all secret. No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. There's an important book. In fact, if you want to read a book that is written by a non-Christian, but that is so prophetic. It's, it's entitled Sleeping with the Devil. How Washington Sold Our Soul for Saudi Crude by Robert Baer, former CIA agent. He's speaking from a lot of firsthand experience. And the title of his book is, is, it really is almost prophetic. Here we are speaking of the harlot, the great harlot who's committed fornication with the kings of the earth. And he titles his book, Sleeping with the Devil. Interesting. Here's some quotes from his book. And I quote, Saudi Arabia's seduction of Washington worked the same way. They paid, we took, and everyone politely averted their eyes. The only people who were willing to tell the truth were those on the political fringe. And they were smugly dismissed as cranks. Why? Because everyone on the inside was getting the money. Bear goes on to say, Any Washington bureaucrat with a room temperature IQ knows that if he stays on the right side of the kingdom, somewhere or another he will be able to finagle his way to feed at the Saudi trough. A consulting contract with Aramco, a chair at the American University, a job at Lockheed, it doesn't matter. There's hardly a living former assistant secretary of state for the Near East, a CIA director or a White House staffer or a member of Congress who hasn't ended up on the Saudi payroll in one way or another, or so it seems. This is a CIA, past CIA agent. 
All right, here's another book I gave you for those of you who want to follow up on some of this. This is written by a French man by the name of Laurent Marat Week. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. He wrote a book called, here's the title, The Prince of Darkness, The Saudi Assault on the West. Here's a quote. Saudi Arabia buys politicians, government officials, journalists, academics, diplomats, colonels, generals, intelligence officers. It buys experts at bargain prices. Countless propagandists and lobbyists. When it is necessary, it demands that television programs be censored. It does it. It has flooded the circles of power with its petrol dollars. It demands that American companies accept its political conditions in order to be able to do business, even in violation of the U.S. Constitution. Okay. What about President Obama? Next slide. We understand a lot more about that photo now, don't we? Bowing to King Fahd. Newsmax, September 3rd, 2008, goes on to point out that Obama had close ties to top Saudi advisors at the early, at, even at the age of 25. Obama's degrees at Columbia and Harvard were paid for by Saudi princes. In fact, there's Dr. Khalid al-Mansour. In an interview, Sutton says he first heard of Obama about Uh, 20 years ago from Khalid al-Mansur, a black Muslim and black nationalist who was a mentor to the founders of the Black Panther Party at the time the party was founded in the early 1960s. Sutton described al-Mansur as advisor to, quote-unquote, one of the world's richest men, Saudi Prince Alawaid bin Talal. There he is again. All right, Revelation 17, 1, Revelation 18, 9, what does it say? And the woman whom you saw reigned over the kings of the earth, the kings of the earth committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her. Now, is that an accurate question? I mean, I'm sorry, an accurate description of what we're seeing in the earth today with the Saudi influence on leaders? Not only American leaders. I had a whole bunch of slides that I was, I was kind of, you know, I was going to put up here too. I got all, there's, there's, he, the influence of Saudi on Great Britain, on leaders all over the world. It's amazing. It's amazing the kind of influence that they have. Okay, next question. Is Saudi Arabia guilty for the blood of the holy ones? Are they guilty for the blood of the Jews and followers of Jesus? All right. Same. Go ahead and go to the next slide. There again, that is the guy I've referred to tonight. He's Prince Talal. I want you to know something about him. Uh, during a live telethon in Saudi Arabia, eight, April 2002, sponsored by the Saudi government, they're raising money, they said, for the Palestinians. And that's, that was the goal of the, that's what they said. One Muslim preacher came on to the telephone and gave this message. And I quote the message he gives on the air. He says this, I am against America. Now remember, the Saudi, uh, that this is uh, in Saudi Arabia. So anything being said is, is, is approved by the Saudi government. He says, I'm against America until this life ends, until the day of judgment. I, against, I am against America. She's the root of all evils and wickedness on the earth. Muslim brothers in Palestine do not have mercy, neither compassion on the Jews, their blood, their money, their flesh. Their women are yours. Take them legitimately. God made them yours. Why don't you enslave their women, he said. Why don't you wage jihad? Why don't you pillage them? This is on, this is on a telephone in Saudi Arabia 
supposedly to, to, to raise money for Palestine. And what happened is they raised $110 million. Prince Talal donated $27 million himself. The money went to 36 families in, in the Palestinian territories, including eight families of suicide bombers. Prince Talal, again, he's the guy that comes over here and lectures us on the need to be more tolerant toward Islam. On the other hand, he donates $27 million to fund the slaughter of Jews. And he supports the kind of hate rhetoric that's coming out of these, these hate preachers. In fact, these guys are trained there. So the question is, are they guilty of the blood of the saints? You know, the, the Saudi lobby is guilty for influencing anti-Israel sentiment, not just the United States, but throughout the world. They have deeply influenced opinions in the UN dramatically. No telling how many of those guys are on the payroll. Now, we have a world where anti-Semitism is increasing every day. And the Saudis are raising up and they're training and sending out hate preachers. They build and they fund the madrasas, the Islamic centers, the mosques, all over the world. They fund them. And then they send out the imams and the preachers. They put out the literature, government approved. In fact, again, you go, go in, go in get, get some of the material out of any mosque. We ask someone to give you some. It'll, it'll be approved by the Saudi government. The Saudi government's paying for it. It's the womb of Islam. It's not just um, Islam. It's the womb of radical Sunni Islam. In fact, I want to tell you this. The largest, okay, the largest Christian missionary organization in the world today is the Southern Baptist Convention. And praise God for them. But I want you to know this. The Saudi Arabian government spends more money every three days on Islamic evangelism and expansion of Islam around the world than the Southern Baptists spend in their every year. Saudi Arabia is a source of violence and hatred and Islamic terrorism around the world. And our government will do nothing about it because many of them are in the back pocket of the Saudis. Middle East Media Research Group, quote, For decades, the royal family of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia has been the main financial, financial supporter of Palestinian groups fighting Israel. They have given over $4 billion to finance the continuation of the Intifada, which is also commonly referred to by the Saudis as Jihad or the Resistance. Revelation 17.6 And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. Revelation 18.24 In her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints and all who have been slain on the earth. In fact, if you want to do some more research, go to a website Here's the name of the website I'll give it to you. It's called The Religion of Peace. And it's being sarcastic. And every day it updates the various Islamic terrorist attacks that are going on every day around the world. I mean, we don't even hear about most of them. We're all kind of got terrorist fatigue anyway. But, they, but if you want to go check it out, they're, they're, they're documenting it all. It's called The Religion of Peace website. Next question. Do the beast nations hate her? In fact, go to the next slide there. I want you to look at that map. Beast nations. Who are some of the beast nations that we know are going to be part of the uh, Antichrist uh, Ten-Nation Confederation? Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Libya, Sudan. Here's what's ironic. is Even though most of these countries tend to be radically Islamic, they hate Saudi Arabia. Now, there's a couple things going on here I'll mention. One is that 
In the Middle East right now, you have kind of two alpha dogs. You have Saudi Arabia and you have Iran. Saudi Arabia rules uh, over the two most holy Muslim mosques. And of course, uh, they're the oil-producing kings. And then Iran, being Shia, the minority sect, the Shiites, and they want to become the alpha dog. They'd love to supplant Saudi Arabia. Uh, even before I came here, did you guys see the news where the Iranian ships are toying with the American ships right there in Persian Gulf, right between Iran and Saudi Arabia? You know that? Interesting. But Saudi Arabia is terrified about Iran getting nukes. And Saudi Arabia and Iran are in many ways enemies. And Saudi Arabia, remember, they are the Sunnis and the Iranians are the Shia. And also historically, Turkey and Saudi Arabia are also at enmity. Turkey ruled a region again in the past, and they think they should be controlling the Holy Mosque. They believe they're the rightful rulers of the entire region. And the Saudi royals have come along and somehow supplanted them this last century, and they don't like it. Now, along with that, Saudi Arabia has spent a lot of money on the military because they know, they know a giant clash is coming. They know it. They know they're going to be attacked. In fact, there is uh, another book I'll give you titled The Rise, Corruption, and Coming Fall of the House of Saud by Saeed K. Abarish. He goes on to say, basically, on one hand, the Saudis live like Westerners. They live these luxurious, perverted lives. They have their harems. They pay, and they kind of pay off the radicals. They fund the radicals. But they also know the day is coming when that monster they created is going to turn on them. There are many who will one, one day want to, they're going to want to replace this corrupt monarchy with what they consider a legitimate Islamic government. So the monarchy is viewed by the fundamental Muslim as a corrupt monarchy. And the Saudi royals are afraid of the radicals that they have created. So they do this dance, where on one hand they try to be friends with the West, and on the other hand they pay off the radicals. But a day of reckoning is coming, and they know it. Again, another quote from the book by Robert Bayer, Sleeping with the Devil, How Washington Sold Our Soul for Saudi Crude. He said this, and I quote, The Saudi government probably spends more per capita than any other country in the world on arms. It will say it only spends one, uh, 13% of its gross domestic product, but he goes on to say that half of its revenue is earmarked for the military. So a lot of money is spent to protect themselves, not only from outsiders, but from their own people. And a lot of money is to protect them from Iran. In fact, if you want to read Robert uh, Bayer's book, you'll conclude without a doubt Saudi Arabia is the whore of the earth. And he, again, he's not even a Christian writing this. He doesn't have any biblical grit he's coming from. He's just telling you facts. Okay, Revelation 17, 16, 17, And the ten horns which he saw, and the beast, these will hate the harlot, and make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose, and by giving their kingdom to the beast, till the words of God should be fulfilled. So the day is coming when this coming Islamic empire is going to turn on the harlot, Mr. Babylon, and they are going to totally destroy her. All right, next question. Have the nations of the earth felt the wrath of her false religion? Next slide. Saudi Arabia is the financiers of 
radical Islam throughout the world. Revelation 18.3, for all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her immorality. Next question, is Saudi Arabia a rabid consumer? Revelation 18.11-13, the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over because no one buys their cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, and pearls. And then he goes on to say, verse 13, and slaves and human lives. Saudi Arabia produces two things. They produce radical Islam and oil. Everything else they have to import. They have to buy it. In fact, if you look at this list in Revelation 18, it actually says they buy slaves and they buy human lives. They buy harems. They buy them. They buy women. Here's a quote from King Fahd bin Abdul Aziz. 1993, here's a quote. It was captured by the newsletter entitled Americans Against the Sawduction of Washington. Here's a quote. Here's what King Fahd said. I summon my blue-eyed slaves anytime it pleases me. I command the Americans to send me their bravest soldiers to die for me. Anytime I clap my hands, a stupid genie called the American ambassador appears to do my bidding. When Americans die in my service, their bodies are frozen in metal boxes by the U.S. Embassy, and airplanes carry them away as if they never existed. Truly, America is my favorite slave. There was a story printed some years ago, again, in this, this, uh, this group called Americans Against the Sawduction of Washington. Sawduction, sawduction of Washington. This group is primarily made up of a group of parents whose children were kidnapped and smuggled to Saudi Arabia as sex slaves. Here's a story. There was a young gal, and I, and I can't, uh, can't remember her name. Uh, she was a child star, and she was on this morning, kind of morning talk show, and she was telling all the horrible things she went through in her life, and the drugs and all this stuff. And, and they found, finally, one of the, the hosts said, what's the worst thing you went through? And she said, the worst thing I ever went through was when I was 14 years old. She said, I, I kept getting these huge bouquets of flowers sent to me every day for two weeks. At the end of the two weeks, there was an invitation to come to a special party. And it was in a very luxurious condo uh, in, in Manhattan. And so she, so she said, so I went. I'm thinking, where are her parents? But she went. She said, I went. And when I got there and I walked in, it was the most beautiful place. And it was, everything was so luxurious. And there was all these beautiful young models. And I didn't know what I was doing there. And so I walked over to this man. He's an Italian man. He's one of the, one of the chefs, chefs. And he said, she said to him, what's all this about? And he said, uh, and he recognized her. So he started talking to her. He said, he saw her on TV. And he said, I'll tell you what this is about. The food and the drink is going to be drugged. And everyone here is going to fall asleep. And they're going to be flown out of here in a helicopter. And they're going to end up and they're, going to end up, and they're never coming back. So get out of here now. So she runs downstairs. There's a couple guards. She ran between them and she got away. There are many stories like that, and the U.S. government won't do anything about it. Next question The Saudi Arabia represent the greatest false religion that has ever existed? Next slide. Again, 1.6 billion Muslims bow and pray to that black cube right there. In the middle of Haram Sharif, not a single non-Muslim is allowed to enter this city. Every year, you're supposed to make a pilgrimage. 
circle this, or one time in your life, circle the Kaaba and get to the black stone and rub on it so your sins can be forgiven. But I was thinking about Mecca and I was thinking of Saudi Arabia and I thought, but there's a city. Where's the city? Because right, because everyone that goes to Mecca, like they go to Jeddah first, and then they, and they make the, the short trip to, to Mecca from Jeddah on the coast. But there is something else being built I want you guys to know about. And it's called King Abdullah Economic City, and it's being built as we sit here. And in fact, I want to show, and it's just down the coast from, from Mecca, and it's, and it's connected. You got Jeddah, and then you have this city, and you have Mecca. It's all one area, it's all like going to be one kind of one city. But I want you to see this video clip. Watch this. Just north of Jeddah on the Red Sea, on the western edge of Saudi Arabia, the world's tallest building is under construction. Set to top 3,300 feet, Kingdom Tower will soar above the Saudi skyline, dwarfing its closest rival in Dubai and setting a new standard for the 21st century skyscraper. But building the tallest structure on the planet is just the first step. Billionaire Saudi businessman Prince Al-Walid bin Talal has bigger plans for the site, pouring $20 billion into the project to develop a multi-use economic city just minutes from downtown Jeddah, a city he hopes will lure foreign investors and create the jobs that Saudi Arabia needs. Now, how involved is Prince Al-Walid? Because this is his brainchild, isn't it? Well, he, he, uh, he, he follows, I think he follows daily the news of the, of the project by looking just on his iPhone. On site, an international team of advisors, consultants, and engineers are using the tallest cranes in the world and the toughest cement on the planet to stabilize 170 floors of residential office and five-star hotel space. I challenge anyone in this team to say that he's worked on something as massive as this before. Never a dull moment. Everything is a challenge. Two double-deck high-speed shuttle elevators, the fastest in the world, moving at 41 feet per second, will take you from top to bottom in a minute and a half max. And unlike its cousin in Dubai, Kingdom Tower must be built to withstand three separate weather systems. And that means erecting a series of support piles deep underground, 270 in total, fortified by the most dense mesh of steel ever built, 345 feet below its base. But while it looks like I'm on the base level of what will be Kingdom Tower, the tallest tower in the world, they actually had to drill 30 floors beneath me just to get the foundations. The economic, social environment today is the perfect situation, perfect timing to develop a project with this magnitude. Set for completion sometime in 2018, Kingdom Tower could hold as many as 3,500 people. You know, there's this city will completely surpass Dubai, and it's under construction even now. In fact, go to the next slide, if you would. Uh, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, in fact, 10 months ago, I was at the top of it. And it's, it's amazing. It's like, you know, it's like you're looking outside an airplane window. Well, Kingdom Tower is going to dwarf it. It only seems appropriate that Mystery of Babylon would have the Tower of Babylon in it, doesn't it? Next slide. Revelation 17, 5, and upon her forehead, a name is written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, the abominations of the earth. It isn't normal life these days 
We're living in days, the days just before the last days. And I want to just close uh, with this passage in a ministry time. Luke 21, verse 31, Even so, Jesus said, You too, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Luke 21, 34, Jesus said, Be on guard that your hearts may not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth, of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying, in order that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. What's the number one thing we need to be doing in these days as we live in these strategic days? we got to become a people of prayer. If we're going to be able to stand in these days, it really be, I think, not just stand, but to be really doing ministry in these days, we have to be a people of prayer. So I want to just, let's all stand here. Marvin, would you come back up here? And uh, I don't know if you want your team to come up too. But I just wanted, you know, this is a lot of information, guys. And I don't think I've ever tried to do so much in one, one time before. A lot of information, but I wanted you to get it all at once. Because if you, see, if you hit it all at once, you're like, yes, it makes perfect sense. Doesn't it? And you realize, you know, before, before these times, we could not have seen it, but now we're seeing it. Why? Because we're living in the times in which we can see the things because we're living in the days right before the last days. But that means that we need to be getting, you know, really making sure that we're preparing ourselves to be really effective ministers in these days and being people of prayer is crucial. You know, if I had to list the, the things, it's always, it'd be number one on my list. And it, was, it has number, is number one on my list in this series. So I just want to invite you to uh, just close your eyes for a moment. And just kind of put your hands out, palms up, like you're receiving from God. And I'm just going to pray that I'm going to ask Marvin just to just sing over us, and we'll close here. I know it's getting late. Father, here we are. We're yours. We belong to you. And we're glad we belong to you. And we thank you for allowing us to be alive in these strategic days. And we don't pretend, Lord, that in our own strength we can, we're going to be able to handle it. We know we can't. We know we need to be on the alert and people of prayer. And so we're asking you tonight, would you impart by the power of your Holy Spirit a real spirit of prayer and intercession upon us? Would you really just really grab our hearts for prayer? Connect us, Lord. Lord, t- cause us to be people that can, can't just slip back into just normal living again. We can't slip back into just watching TV all the time again. Lord, we, we, we got to be people that realize we are here for such a time as this. Lord, make us people of prayer, Lord. So even now, come Holy Spirit. We ask you to do a work that only you can do. Do it for Jesus' sake. Do it for our sake. Do it for the purposes, you know, purposes of God in this hour's sake. Come. Make us a people of prayer.